Romans chapter 6, and we're dealing tonight with the issue of a couple things. One is, why don't I just sin all I want? Why don't I just sin all I want? Uh, have you heard this before? Why don't believers just sin all they want? I've even heard uh, some people accuse us of believing that it's okay to sin all you want. I've heard this many times, and you will hear it again, because people just say this sort of thing. So Romans 6 deals with this, but then after dealing with sort of that sort of twisted distortion of Christian belief, it deals with the real issue of how believers deal with sin and how I can overcome sin and temptation. And this, to me, is the biggest battle of the daily Christian life, is the battle against the flesh, the battle against sin and temptation. Um, so here we are going through the book of Romans. Uh, different topics come up, and I like to introduce even the study to tell you kind of here's some of the topics that come up. But most importantly to realize, it's the passage we're understanding, not just the topic. We're going through Romans 6 to try to look at it, and you should be able to read it afterward. You should be able to, tonight, after you've heard this whole thing and studied it, you should be able to sit down alone, read through the passage, and go, I understand this. I know what this is saying now. I understand each sentence and each phrase, you know, at, at least a whole lot better than before, because we're trying to understand the scripture and the word of God, not just sort of let me occupy you for an hour as I pontificate about things I think are important, that kind of thing. Rather, understand the passage because the, the scripture is written for us that we may be thorough, equipped for every good work, that, that we may be trained up in righteousness. That's what the Bible does for us, and we believe that. So here we are, Romans 6, verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this, this takes us back a little bit to backtrack. We've been going through Romans chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes letter by letter at certain points. But what shall we say then? Or he's like, what shall we say to all this other stuff I just said? He's given us a clear explanation that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. That my works do nothing for my salvation. It's all Jesus's works. I just trust. And so what do I say to that? Do I get a sin all I want since I'm saved by grace? Is grace licensed to sin? Is free forgiveness permission to just do whatever you want and then you'll be forgiven? Sin all you want, say a prayer, and then go to heaven. Is that what we're saying? This is a really an old, old accusation. I mean, look at it here. It's 2,000 years ago. It's right there. And yet modern atheists, most often, it's atheists in my experience, who are scoffing against the Bible, they'll be... They'll be sarcastic and they'll say things like this about Christianity. They distort what we believe and they offer you a twisted, ugly version of Christianity and they act like you believe this. And if they're really clever, what they like to do sometimes is they'll offer you a twisted version of Christianity. They'll tell you you believe that and then they ask you to defend it. And my answer is, I'm not defending things I don't believe. And that is so often the case. They try to get you to, to defend your belief in a sky daddy. And you're like, you know, I don't remember reading about a sky daddy <laughs> in my Bible. <laughs> um, I'm shocked at some people who in their bitterness toward God, they characterize Christianity as a free sin movement. As a free sin movement. Now this sometimes comes from other religions, not just atheism. We're talking about other religions that are works-based. They believe in works for salvation, and they look at those who believe in salvation by faith alone, grace alone, apart from works. And they say, 
well, you guys, you're really preaching a sinful life. You're preaching that people can sin all they want, but we're here, we're at least requiring them to do a certain number of things in order to get saved or to go to heaven. So we preach a holier life. And that's, that's shocking and just not true. So Paul's dealing with this, with this here in the text. He refutes it. Um, so what, what should we notice first? Uh, I, I do say it's a distortion of Christianity, but yet people do distort Christianity. Even so-called Christians sometimes distort Christianity. So it's radically true that we have the ability as humans to justify pretty much anything. We can justify any behavior we want. I have seen people justify adultery. I've seen people justify leaving their spouse. I've seen people justify all, all manner, all manner of wicked and harmful things. I remember talking to my cousin when I was, when I was probably 13, 14 years old. And uh, he, was in 17, he was 17, 18. He was involved in a gang. And he would go around and they would steal. And they would, they would rob from places. And he says, but it's okay. I never rob from just individuals. I only steal from corporations. Which is ironic because a corporation is just a large group of individuals. <laughs> so, so I never steal from one person. I only steal from hundreds of people at a time. That makes it better. But we have the ability to like just justify pretty much anything. And, and you have this too, and so do I. You can see this if you look at history. Read history. Read about the eugenics movement that went on in America. Read about this sterilizing certain people so their genes would not get, get carried down the road against their will. Read about the stuff that people said about, you name the political issue of the time. You name it. Look around the world at different countries and the type of justifications they offer. Why in some Muslim countries they'll punish a woman who's a victim of rape instead of the rapist. And listen to their justifications. It's insane. But we have the power to justify pretty much anything and carefully looking at history proves this. In fact, you don't have to go to history. You can look right now today at the issue of abortion. I hear people justify abortion and with my eyes open to see it for what it is, it's the murder of this tiny little innocent baby. It blows my mind that they'll say things like, well, what if she was raped? Like, do you kill the children of rape? Is this okay? But what if she doesn't have enough money? Oh yes. Well, cause raising children in poverty is so bad that we should kill those children instead. Like we can justify anything we want using, using, uh, bad justification. So this is true, right? Convicted criminals, they're full of good reasons why they did what they did. And how what, how what they did wasn't really deserving of the punishment that they get. But here's what I want to say is, as a Christian, you cannot be biblical and justify sin. There's never a justification for sin being biblical. You'll always find a reason. You can come up with one and then be mad at people who, who dare to poke that <laughs> and press it and push back against it. But as a believer in Jesus, I never have a justification biblically for committing sin. This is what he's talking about here. Shall we sin? Shall we sin? And he'll get into more detail as we go. So Jesus, I'll put it this way. Jesus does not justify sin. He suffered for sin. Yes, he freed us from sin. He justifies the sinner, but he never justifies the sin. He never makes sin okay, and it should never be okay in my own heart. I see it as a sign of spiritual maturity when a person will refuse to justify sin in their own life. I know of a youth pastor I heard, I heard of um, who he would yell at the kids. Like he would raise his voice and yell and scream at the kids. And he said, what did he say when confronted about this? He said, sometimes they need to hear it like that so they'll listen. And he was just in the flesh. 
he was just angry and he was letting his anger lash out upon the kids. That was what he was doing. And he had a justification. And so he would, and the, and the thing is, the justification is the thing that keeps me in my sin. It's the thing that keeps me doing the thing I shouldn't be doing because I feel like I can make it okay. So Romans 6 will deal with justifications for sin. It'll also deal with empowering us to come out of it. And, and here's his response. Shall we continue in sin? Verse 2. No. <laughs> Certainly not. Certainly not. This in the Greek is an emphatic no or a very strong new. No. Like you don't do this. This is bad. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Why do we not sin? It's because of who we are. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? I'm one who's dead to sin. How can I live in that which I am dead to? There are several principles that are going to be offered for why we should come over or overcome sin and turn from sin in Romans 6. But one of them is this concept right here. Like, I am dead to sin. And he'll unpack that more as he goes. So keep this in mind. What, what he's done is he's, is to backtrack from last week, right? He talked about how Adam and Jesus are somehow parallels. And how in Adam we all sin and fall short. And then we all are born with a sin nature. But then in Christ, we're, we're given this sort of new start, this new head this new representative of all of us, all of humanity, whoever turns to Christ, whoever receives him. But then now he's talking about how just like Adam locks us in this life of sin, so Jesus releases us from that into a life of righteousness. So there's like a, a practical life change that comes. So verse 3, he goes on. He says, do, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I like and I think we should highlight in our head, when we see in the New Testament, when it's usually Paul too, when he's writing to people and he goes, don't you know? He's like, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Or don't you know? And he says this, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And now he'll take apart the idea of baptism. If you see sin as okay, there's something you don't know. That's, I think, what Paul's telling us in Romans 6. If you think sin is ever okay, there's something you don't know. But there are many people who think that they're sophisticated enough to understand when certain sins are okay. You know, it's like, no, I know well enough to realize that, like, you know, it's okay to be deceitful and lie about these issues or those. And, it's, and there are certain times where it's okay to let sin r rule in my body. Now, I'm not here saying that there aren't truly complicated life situations, genuinely difficult moments, genuinely hard decisions about how do I handle this or that. I'm talking about people who are justifying the flesh ruling their lives. There's something that you don't know. That's not sophisticated. That's ultimately ignorant. That's a lack of knowledge. So he talks about the meaning of baptism. Uh, so we're baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. What is then the meaning of baptism? I actually really love to talk about this topic. I think baptism is really neat. God has given us really two, what you might call sacraments, two really ritual things that we're called to do as believers in Jesus. Just two, baptism and then communion. These are the things that I'm called to be part of and called to do. Baptism once, communion on a regular basis. Are we given exactly how often we do communion? No. It just says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So there's some implication that it happens on some kind of regular basis. Um, but baptism, what is that about? Well, John came and it says in the Gospels, it says John came preaching a baptism of repentance. That's the word. Over and over again, it says this. It was a baptism of repentance. Uh, Jesus would come and he would baptize us not only just in water, but in the Holy Spirit. 
And so we would be receiving the Holy Spirit. So there was a, a not only a, I'm repenting, I'm doing this, but there would be a real life transformation upon the death and resurrection of Christ. This, this now leads us into a new way of relating to God, being born again. So it's pretty powerful. But what does the, what does the baptism actually mean? Does the baptism simply mean I repent? No, it, that's more of a condition of baptism. Repentance is the condition by which you go, yeah, are, are you going to be baptized? Yeah, I repent of that old life. And when I baptize, I always ask people, do you repent of the carnal, selfish, or sinful life that you live apart from Christ to, to follow Jesus now? I always ask them that because I think baptism involves repentance and an attitude of change, a turning of direction of my life from sin to God. But then the water itself is symbolic. When a person goes down into the water, they're baptized in the words of Romans 6.3, into his death. This, this going under the water is like going into the grave, so to speak. I'm into his death. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And as I baptize, as I get baptized, the symbolism, what it represents, is I identify Jesus' death on the cross applies to me. His sacrifice is for me personally. I receive what he did for me. So that's the going into the water. And then as they're coming out of the water... You have the whole washing, the cleansing, the idea that to some degree, at least some of your filth is coming off in that water. And that here represents the fact that all of your sin has been washed by the blood of Christ. By his death, and then you come out, you're identified with his resurrection. And, I, and this is just me, but I feel like it's a special moment when you take your first breath of air after the baptism. Because there is, there is then upon receiving Christ, there is then the Holy Spirit entering your life. And um, beautiful, beautiful thing. So there's a cleansing, there's a death, there's a new life. And he's like, don't you get it? You, you're, you're dead to that old life. You die with Christ. And just as Christ was resurrected anew, you have a new life in Christ. Now, baptism, I'll just want to mention in passing, it should immediately follow salvation. Ideally. For many of us, this is not the case. There are many people who are in churches today who are like, I've been walking with Jesus for so long that I'm embarrassed to tell everyone I've never been baptized. You should get baptized. It's, it's not about you, your pride here. It's just go, just go do it, man. Um, but really, ideally, there's no requirement of you have to take six months of new believers classes before you can get baptized. There's no requirement of you have to be walking with Jesus for 10 years before you can get baptized. It's really just if you have genuine faith and repentance, let's get you baptized. Let's do this. Let's just do this. And we have regular baptisms at the church, and occasionally um, we do them uh, irregularly because someone's like, I need it, Lord. <laughs> and so we do it. Um, and that's, I, I think it's beautiful. So uh, verse 4, it says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So I'm, I'm identified with the death of Christ, and then I am consequently naturally identify with the life of Christ. The death is like the death of that sin nature that Romans worked so hard to show you, to hold up the mirror and say, look, everybody's sinned. You've sinned too. You know why? Because there's something wrong with you. Yet Christ delivers you from the bondage of this, from the guilt of this, and from the control, and, uh, and then delivers you into a new life. And so that, that's what we have. We have a new life, newness of life. That's the end of verse four there. It's a new life. This is not reformation. Christians don't just try to reform people. There's plenty of religions and people out there trying to reform people. Uh, recently, um, I went to, this might surprise you guys to find out, I went to the Jehovah's Witness Memorial. 
See, once a year, the Jehovah's Witnesses put on a, a one-year thing where they invite everybody to go to. And they put up, they, you see the invitations on your door. And I decided to go to this event because I have a heart for Jehovah's Witnesses and I wanted to see what they're experiencing and see what they're going through. I wouldn't really recommend that you go to this type of thing unless the Lord's calling you to a ministry like that. Uh, but I did go. And they knew I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness because I wasn't wearing a suit. So I was flocked. <laughs> so I was flocked. Actually, it was me and two others. And all the three of us, it was very obvious that we were not Jehovah's Witnesses. We had some very interesting conversations. It was, I, thought it was, I thought it was really insightful. One of the things, though, you learn is you're hearing them preach their message. And they're trying to kind of get subtly, not clearly, but subtly get you with, to have their theology. One of the things they pray is they're praying, God, access the good that's already in us and help us to make it better. Help us to be even more good than we already are. And as a Christian who's grounded in the word and who knows, say the book of Romans, for instance, you're like, the good that's already in me? <laughs> you're like, you're like uh, that's cute. <laughs> no, that's not right. I don't need you to access my good and make me better, Lord. I need to just die to this old person and this old self and this selfishness and have a new life in Christ. So we're not preaching reformation. We're preaching, preaching transformation. Right? This is like, it's not like... If only that caterpillar could, could, could try to fly, but, but jump from a higher leaf, maybe then it would be okay. You know, maybe you take the caterpillar and you throw it up into the air and then it can fly. And this is, this is the sinner trying to live a reformed life. Ultimately, there's something in your nature that's wrong. No, it needs the metamorphosis. It needs to be changed into the butterfly and then it can fly. And so the, to the Christian, it's, it's like the butterfly going, you know, I want to go crawl around in the ground again. It just, it just doesn't apply. Don't you know? Don't you know what you are now? So we're, we're preaching a transformation. This is what we mean when we, say, when we say, I was born again. There is so much confusion on the term born again Christian nowadays. You see, born again Christian was a term that got, that, well, it comes from the scripture. It's been used for thousands of years, but it became especially popular in probably the 70s when there were all these people that got saved and their lives were truly changed by Jesus. And they looked around and they saw that a lot of people in their culture called themselves Christians, but showed no evidence of God's work in their life. And so they started saying, well, what's the difference between us and them without trying to be judgmental? I know I'm a sinner just like them, but what's the difference? Why is my life seeming to have a real relationship with God? And yet so many others are, seem to be in the dark. And they said, well, that's because I've really been born again. I'm a born again Christian. I'm not just raised with religion. I don't just have doctrines. I have a relationship with God where I've died to myself. I've been given the Holy Spirit. I have a new life in Christ and I'm just living out the new life. I am born again. So they said born again, not as a way of saying I have this list of teachings, I believe, although it includes some of that, but as a way of saying life changed, life changed by Jesus. So this is interesting because I have, I've encountered um, a few atheists who say that they were born again. Now, this is confusing to me because I say, if you're an atheist, now get me, hear me out. You don't think you were born again. I mean, forget whether I think you were or not. You don't think you were born again because you don't think anybody's born again because you think everybody is delusional about their beliefs in a relationship with God. Born again is, no, man, you gave me a new life, God. You changed me from the inside out. I have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. I'm born again. And if an atheist is like, I was born again. And I'm like, well, then you're not an atheist. Because you think there's a God who you can have a relationship with and who you say you did. So me and, uh, me and Allison one time went out with a friend of hers and we sat and talked. And he told us that he was a real born again Christian. 
And I know the church he went to and the theology there is solid. Born again means born again to them. It means exactly what it means biblically. And I said, come on, you don't really think you were born again. And so we sat there for like an hour eating lunch, eating yummy Thai food, and talking about the idea of being born again. And so I explained to him why there's no way he could really believe he was born again because he thinks there is no God, there's no Holy Spirit. If there's no God or no Holy Spirit, how could you ever have experienced these things? You can't experience the Holy Spirit in genuineness. You were never really born again. Maybe what you mean is you really believed Christian teachings. You really thought it was true. You went to church, you read the Bible. Maybe that's what you meant, but not born again. At the end of the conversation, he says, you know what, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why I said that. I wasn't born again. You're right. So we go home, and then um, he sends an email to us. And in the email, he's very mad at me. He sends the email to Allison. He says, your husband. Your husband. I can't believe your husband said that I was not born again. And I'm just going, "How do you, this is the, the most simple thing in the world. Anyone can understand this. It's just a darkness. You know, There's just like a spiritual darkness that's upon him. And, it's unf- and it breaks my heart. It's sad. But this is what born again is. This is the idea. And so this is what he looks at the believers and he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. One word stands out to me in that verse, and it's the word should. We should. Even so we should walk in newness of life. If you're saved, there's a guaranteed change in your life. You have a relationship with Jesus. But there is not a guaranteed holy life. This is all too true. But we should walk in newness of life. So as a Christian, I'm not guaranteed. There are carnal Christians. This is true. Now, I'm, I'm fearful to look at someone and say, it's okay. They're, they're, they're saved. They're just carnal. Because I don't know how to tell the difference between a saved carnal person and an unsaved person. I can't tell. So I typically would just go, you know what? I don't know. I won't tell them they're saved and give them false assurances. I'll just try to bring them back to Jesus. <laughs> That's my goal is come back to the Lord. Get your life right with Christ. Because I know Jesus also said there's tares amongst the wheat. And so there's some who look Christian but aren't. And, how, and, and I'm not going to pretend I can figure out who's who on this issue. I'm just going to say if something's wrong in your walk, how about you get it right? How about you get it right? Um, so what, what is it here then that binds us according to Romans 6? What binds us to Christ, the reason we obey... It's not fear, it's duty. There's a sense of duty. We live up to our calling. I'm dead and now I'm raised again. I have a new life and I want to live out the new life. It's also love. It's also love. It's all about Jesus. You know, if you love me, obey my commands, Jesus said. I think if you struggle with sin, you've got to get this verse in your heart. If you love me, obey my commands. And remind yourself that this is about love between you and the Lord, not just resisting something you feel like doing. This is about your love for Jesus. But it's also about knowledge. Because he says, if you think you can sin, there's something you don't know. Don't you know? Don't you know? So there's a sense of getting the theology and understanding your position and who you are. Sin is such a waste of time. It's such vanity, emptiness. It's such, it really is a waste of time. It's not only evil, but it's a, it's a waste. It's just a waste. And, there, and we want to get our eyes opened to this. And sometimes this helps because you stop and you look at your life from eternity and you ask yourself, if I was in heaven right now and I could tell myself something about my current life, what would I say? You know, if I could flash back and tell myself something, some encouragement, some direction, some correction perhaps, what would I tell myself? And for me, oftentimes it's very clear. I'd be like, hey, pay attention, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Hey, get focused. Hey, be about what's really important. Hey, stop worrying. Stop fretting about things that are a lot of times just distractions. 
And um, that can be a good thing. So verse 5, we continue. Romans 6, 5. We're really blasting through here. Blasting through. It's supersonic. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And forgive me if we take our time, but there's a lot there. He just said, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death. Well, this is something we might miss. We're united together. I'm not only united with Christ, but we, we, the, the, the plural us, we are united together in the likeness of Jesus' death. That when we become Christian, we become part of a group, part of a, 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 a conglomeration, if you will, <laughs> or a body, as Jesus likes to call us. We're his body. And so there's a, there's a togetherness of it. It's a fundamental identity change. I actually belong to the church, more so than I belong to my parents. I mean, whatever role someone else has, even husband-wife roles, aren't going to last as long as brother-sister roles in the church. And that's pretty significant to me. And um, I wonder how, I, sometimes I think about the great reunion, you know. I think even there's some believers that even, there's like a little bit of weirdness between me and them, and maybe I'm not sure why, maybe it's my fault. Um, but I'm so grateful that there's a time when I'll, we'll be in heaven. There, none of that will be there. And I'll be like, man, what sweet fellowship there will be. Maybe someone who was bitter, who walked away from me as a friend, and then years and years and years go by. And then yet I know there's a time coming when we'll have that reunion. And it'll just be sweet. So, so we're, we're together in Christ. Um, we're united together in the likeness of his death. So being human, you, we're united in, in a sense of in just being human. Humans are all connected in a sense, we have the same identity. In the same sense, in Christ you have the same identity. The same thing that sets humans apart from trees sets Christians apart from other humans. Not that other humans are trees. Don't take the analogy there. (laughs) That's not where it goes. But but we are given a new identity in Christ, and so there's that. Um, And in this new identity, it says, certainly we also shall be, future tense, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. <clears throat> and this is something we've been talking about during our Q&A stuff on Sunday nights a little bit, um, is what, 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 what are we going to be like? What will our future be like? And that's a future thing. We shall be. There's a future result of who I'm becoming. The metamorphosis is still ongoing for us. Well, 1 John 3, 2 says this. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. I know I'm adopted. I'm his child. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't know what I'll be like exactly, but I know I'll be like Jesus. It hasn't been revealed. If you ask John the Apostle, John, describe to me what will my new body be like? What will our new reality be like? He would have said, I don't know, but we'll be like Jesus. Like that would be his answer. He has not been revealed. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it says this. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who do you think the man of dust refers to? Adam, right? From dust you came, to dust you shall return. We bore his image, not only being like Adam because we're humans, but also with that fallen nature. So as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Future tense. So Jesus, after his death and then resurrection, he was different. There were differences. Um, I don't know if some say he walked through walls. I think we're reading a little bit into it. I don't know if he walked through a wall or just appeared in a room. Um, I don't know how that worked. 
but there was obviously something different going on. He is his body. He was born in a, raised in a physical body, excuse me, and he was ascended up into heaven. And that physical body can inhabit heaven. Yet, if you read the scripture carefully, you'll see that normally when people when people die, even now, if I go to be in the presence of God, I don't have a physical body yet. And this physical body, if it was brought into heaven in trueness, I would not survive. Any more than if I was brought to the moon, I would not survive. I'm just, I'm, it's fit for earth. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks in a lot more detail about this, actually. Um, so I recommend reading that. But here's some ways in which I'll be like Christ. For one, I'll have eternal life. Um, that's very unlike this body. This body is, is, is destined for failure. That's a little freaky when you think about it. When you're like, you know what? I'm, maybe I'll escape cancer. Maybe I'll escape Alzheimer's. Maybe I'll escape a car accident. Maybe I'll escape heart attack. Maybe I'll escape an aneurysm. But something's going to get me. You know, something's going to get me. And this body's going to slowly start to fall apart. That's a little bothersome to me. <laughs> as it is, I'm sure, to you. And we have loved ones and we've seen them go through this process. All the more reason why we need to remind ourselves of these truths. That this new body we will have is eternal. This new body does not fall apart. It does not become decrepit. It does not become incapable. You finally learn how to do life right, but you're not physically able to do that anymore. <laughs> you, know? you know, when you when you learn how to, what, is it, what does it say? The, the, the young, they, they, they can do, but they don't know how, and the old know how, but can't do. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that's not going to be the way it is. So I have an eternal life, an undying body. Um, it'll also be free from sin nature or free from the control and influence of sin, which I totally glory in that fact. I'm so stoked. I wish I could go there right now. Um, it's also going to be a holy life, a completely holy life. There, there's just a purity coming from deep within you. We're also heirs of creation. We're co-heirs with Christ, according to the scripture. That there's something about being in the identity of Christ, being his children, that we're heirs of creation. We're under Christ, but we're over pretty much everything else. Paul even talks about this, says we'll judge angels. Well, that's, that's interesting. We're really restored to a great dominion, maybe even a greater dominion than that of Adam and Eve in the garden. I think probably greater because they didn't seem to have quite the level of exaltation that we're going to be experiencing. Um, it, so it will be a physical body, but it'll be different. And you can read about Jesus' resurrection appearances if you want clues as to how it'll be different. So verse 5 tells us what we shall be, but the reason why it's said is because verse 4 is telling us what we should be. So you shall be, therefore you should be. Let's suppose for a second that you were part of the royal family in England. And here you are being raised up and you're just a kid and they look at you and you're like, maybe you're 15 years old. And you're like stealing Snickers bars from the local liquor store. And someone looks at you and they go, you know, one day you're going to be the king or queen of England. And because of what you shall be, there's something you should be now. And it's not stealing Snickers bars from the subjects. You know, that's like, that's like not appropriate. And in a sense, as, as what I shall be in Christ, this holy, eternal experience that I will have, for, then there's something I should be now. And that's interesting how Paul combats the idea of people sinning is by saying, oh, come on. Don't you know who you are in Christ? If you really think sin is okay, like, don't you know who you are in Christ? You'll be in glory for all eternity in the image of the Lord. And you think sin is permissible for you? 
Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, Knowing this, that our old man, and, and that is a phrase I think is important, our old man, it doesn't mean old male, old man as old human or old nature. That's what it's referring to, right? So, ladies, this, refer, this applies to you too. This is our old nature. Our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And he'll unpack this more, not only in chapter 6, but also in chapter 7. So we'll dig into that concept of being dead, free from sin even more. But this introduces the concept of the old man. The old man, now Paul's applying this concept, old man, to all that sin nature he explained to us earlier in Romans. Um, and he gets into this in Ephesians and in Colossians. He says to put off the old man, to put on the new, and to put off all these things that are associated with the sinful sin nature and put on those that are associated with the new nature. Um, the old man's morally broken. The old man, the old person sinned and is in bondage to sin, is actually controlled by sin. Um, and and this, is, this is interesting. This is one of the reasons why I, I love the biblical worldview because it, it really fits with reality. When you sin, it does get control of you. It's the nature of sin. Interesting how righteousness doesn't seem to control you. It's something you do on purpose. But sin, well, that just happens. <laughs> it just happens. you know. But goodness, that's something that we, we labor towards. Um, Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. Obviously, he didn't mean literally. He meant that the death of Jesus has a positional or, or um, application into my life where I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, that old man. That old man's been crucified and is dead. But Christ lives in me. That's the new nature. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Romans 6 and 7, I think, deals with the life we now live in the flesh. Like I have, I have the Holy Spirit alive in me, but I still have this flesh I got to deal with. And that's an interesting concept. But it breaks the bondage. Um, now this is it. Verse 7. This is your moment of real faith. This is your challenge if you're saying, I don't have to be told that sin is bad and that I shouldn't sin. I just want help overcoming it, Mike. That's all I want is help overcoming it. Verse 7. For he who's died has been freed from sin. The statement of Romans 6 is pretty powerful. It's saying, you're already free. But I don't feel free, Lord. Oh, but you are. The old man's not free, but you're dead to that. You're free. Don't walk in it. Don't walk in the old man. Don't walk in the flesh. Don't walk in that carnality. I remember hearing a story about a gorilla who was raised in the zoo and it was always in this cage. And they took it and they released it in the wild and they opened the cage. And after years of being behind the bars, the cage was open, but the gorilla didn't leave. It was just kind of resigned to it. And some Christians live their life like this. You're free from sin, but you're not stepping out from it because it's just something you're used to. And you don't have to. And that's what Romans 6. Romans 6 asks us to believe in the actual transformation that God has brought into our lives. And it's very empowering. And it lets us walk out of that cage. Um, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, now applying, because we're identified with Christ, apply all that information about Christ, 
a one-time death, an eternal life, a death to sin, a life to God. Now apply it to you. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to me, the key word in verse 11 is reckon. Now, I have family from the Midwest, so I, so I know what reckon means, okay? <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> I reckon it means I am of the opinion. This is how I reckon, how I consider things to be true. It's going to be a good day. Yeah, I reckon. That means it, I believe it'll be a good day. You, you should believe yourself to be dead to sin. Dead indeed to sin. I like that. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> so death and sin are biblically linked, right? You sin, you die. Sin brings bondage. Sin when it's full grown brings forth death. All these kinds of things. Biblically, the two are connected. And to be bound to sin is to be bound to death. To be under death is to be under sin. They're, 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 they're two sides of the same coin. So when Jesus frees you from death, he must also free you from sin. And as much as you have had eternal life begin in your life already, and you will never stop, you will never cease the life of God in your life, you also have freedom from sin already happening in your body, in your life, I should say. So eternal life starts now. And since sin is connected to death, so righteousness is connected to life. So you reckon this is an act of faith, and this is something that I think is not easy for a lot of people. My experience is that it's very powerful when you are tempted and you might feel, I don't know that I can overcome this. I don't know how to say no to this. I'm just too angry. I'm too bitter. I can't forgive. I can't resist. I can't say no. I can't put this thing down. Is you say, yes, I can. Because I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. Because I'm going to reckon myself dead to sin. There's a reckoning that has to happen in your heart. I consider myself dead to sin. I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to die to it. I don't have to reform my sin nature. That's, that though it, is, though it is in a sense, it's like I've already defeated the enemy. That It's already over, but the enemy's still there. <laughs> it's just we haven't cleaned up the mess yet, you know? And so, I, you know, I get to heaven. I won't even have to do this part, but I just have to reckon myself dead. This is a powerful thing. And so verse 12 goes on and he says this. This advice that as a pastor, there are people who've struggled with sin where if I gave them verse 12, they might be even insulted by me, feel insulted because they're like, no, Mike, you don't understand. I don't have a choice. And yet the scripture says you do. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Reign as in rule or have authority, right? Don't let it reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. This might be a new way of looking at things for some people. Right Before you're saved, you sin because you're a sinner, because it's your sin nature and all that. But now that you're saved, sin is something you see as other than you. You see it as temptation coming at you, not coming necessarily just from you. There's an old nature, that's the source of my temptation, but there's a new nature and this is what I want to walk in. I get to pick which one to walk in. You don't have to stop yourself from being tempted, you just have to not let sin reign in your mortal body. So instead of it being your own inclinations, it's the old nature trying to assert, con assert control over your will. That's the idea. So on one side, you have the old nature. On one side, you have the new nature. In the middle, you've got your will and you're picking between the two. It's not the good angel and the bad angel. I always thought that was funny. The good angel, the bad angel, because 
because yeah, but what what comes from me? <laughs> like like there's just angels. What am I, a puppet? <laughs> but instead, there's the old nature fallen. Then there's the new nature in Christ, and I am going to walk in that new nature. So sin is an option. It says in verse twelve, "Do not let sin reign." So you don't have to let it reign. It doesn't have to control you. It's a decision that you make. And this, to me, is one of the biggest battles. In a very practical, day-to-day, moment-by-moment battle as a believer, is to say, I, when confronted with temptation, I should not say, I can't help it. I can't overcome. That, while it might make me feel better about my sin, it traps me in my sin. This is why I've always felt a little odd about the concept of addiction. I understand there's a legitimacy to addiction, but I don't want it to be brought to a place where believers think that they don't have the ability to follow Jesus. Like, I can follow Jesus here, but not here, not even possible. I think that that, um, that is against clear teachings of Scripture. However, it's still a little complicated. So let's get a little further here. It says in verse 13, um, Do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your members refers to your body parts. That's how Paul's using it. He does that a lot. Talks about members. Your members are your body parts, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ear, your ears, if you have to. Um, these, These things are presenting to God instead of to sin. So what's your job? Your job is presenting. What am I presenting myself to? As you wake up in the morning and you're deciding what to do with your early hours of the day, as you have your day off, your free time, and you remember what God said about the Sabbath, keep it holy. <laughs> you're deciding, shall I keep it holy today or not? You know, the, the, these are the things. I'm presenting. I'm presenting. So it's it's though the, the presenting is... I often think I don't want to present myself to sin, but I don't always see the solution as instead present myself to righteousness. But sometimes dealing with sin is like getting a song out of your head. When you get a bad or lame or annoying song stuck in your head, the solution isn't get that song not in my head. Stop thinking about that song. Stop. That's not going to work. The solution is get a better song in your head. Find a song you love and start humming or singing that. That's what you do. I'm tempted with sin. What do I need to do? I need to go and do righteousness instead. Instead of don't sin, it's do righteousness. But a lot of people fail because all they do is they try not to sin. They try to not fail instead of trying to present their their members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we're not just abstaining. Abstinence is, is good, but it's only one side of the coin. I'm focused on righteousness. So I'm not just, in, in a sense, if you apply this into our culture nowadays. I'm not just anti-homosexual behavior. I'm pro-family. I'm pro-marriage. I'm pro-design the way God has made us. I'm not just against lying. I'm for honesty and trustworthiness. I'm not just against laziness. I'm for diligence and faithfulness. So we're not just abstaining. We're doing righteousness. And that's that's part of the battle because because sin, as I, as I fight it and fight it and fight it, it slowly seems to assert more and more control in my mind and heart. But when I just stop fighting it and go do right, that's when I experience the freedom. If only the world understood this. 
there's a song out there, a popular song, and it says, and it has a lyric that says, uh, and I think this is right, everything that kills me makes me feel alive. I just want to be like, bingo. <laughs> bingo. Bingo. That's why you need a new life in Christ. Because the old life, the old nature is, is attracted to and fallen in these sinful ways. And the new one is going from life to life to life to life. Real life. Then in verse 14, it goes on. And, and, and we get the complexity of this because it might sound oversimplified. If I stopped the whole Bible study now, it would, it would be too simple. Let's keep reading. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Um, so grace means the opposite of being stuck under sin. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. We'll get more into the law in the next chapter. I'll explain that better then. Um, but sin shall not have dominion or power over your life. Sin, and you feel it as a Christian. You realize sin is something that's controlling me. It's not something I get to control. It, it takes control over me. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> that's, the, that's my translation. Um, <laughs> it's like, no, of course not. Of course sin is completely unacceptable to the Christian life. Just because you don't go to hell over this issue doesn't mean it's okay Obviously, and I think anybody who's been born again, you get this. Verse 16, it goes on. It says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, this, according to verse 19, if you flash forward, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. Or Paul's saying, I'm using an analogy. I'm using a simplistic analogy. Because even though... Here's me, I'm free from sin. Yet you might go, amen, I'm free from sin. But why do I still feel its power? That's what it's talking about here. This is the more complicated part, right? This is it, verse 16. Do you not know that whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? I can still choose to fall into the slavery of sin, even though I don't have to be. In a sense, I can put the chains on myself. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That phrase, obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, I think it's talking about salvation by faith. Yet you were slaves, you were all this, but you trusted in Christ and you got saved. And verse 18, and having been set free from sin, that's my past tense, right? You have, you became slaves of righteousness. Then he explains, I speak in human terms. This is just an analogy. Don't take it too far. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And that we understand. The weakness of your flesh. Some people think the flesh is strong because it exerts such power, but it's really not the case. It's weak. Like Jesus said, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and this is why they weren't praying with him that their prayers were so pathetic and you're like i want to pray lord and i'm like lord i just want you know and that's the weakness of your flesh this is, and you're and you know it and you're like man i'm pathetic the flesh isn't strong if it was truly true strength it would be able to walk in obedience to god but it's a, there's a weakness and a bondage to uh, to sin it falls so to speak so um so i i think i'm familiar with the weakness of the flesh Yes. Um, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Notice the sin grows. It, it's lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Sin always leads to more sin. Um, nice thing is the opposite is true. When you walk in righteousness, it, it leads to more as well. Um, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So there's a tension here 
between saying I'm totally free from sin, yet I'm still dealing with potential slavery or bondage that I put myself under when I yield to sin. And that, to me, makes total sense as a Christian. I go, I know the freedom of Christ. I've experienced that, that like lighthearted, I am free, man. I don't have to do any of this stuff. And then yielded to sin in my life and then found it to be a clamp around my arm, you know, like a bondage in my own life. And this seems to be really Romans 6 is explaining the tension of all this. So what do we do? We draw back to the truth. But you know what? You have set me free, Lord. I'm going to reckon the old man dead. And in that, I'll experience the freedom again that I've, that I've always had in Christ. This is my daily battle. It's not just about doctrine. Um, it's about applying it into my life. It really, really is. It really is. It says in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. When you were slaves of sin, you were free. And Just think of how free you were from righteousness. You know? I'm, I'm a slave to sin. Like, righteousness really has no power over me. And it really doesn't. But yet, when you turn to Christ, when you come to Christ, when you yield your life to Christ... That's how you should be towards sin. Sin has no power over me. Sin has no claim upon my life. I have no, no commitment to it. And then in verse 21, there's something here for, for those of us who, are, uh, who might share our testimonies. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now? Ashamed. Sin in my past is not a badge I wear. You know how big of a sinner I was before I was saved. And then people look and they're like, oh man, my testimony's lame. I wasn't involved in any organized crime like that guy. Like, this isn't something we should be sad about. Like, oh, well, I wish I had a, bit, a better testimony of more evil in my personal history. Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? So these are things in which they're now ashamed. I appreciate someone who can tell me a powerful experience they've gone through. Maybe great bondage of sin in their life, but there's no delight in it, and it's not boasting. It's not bo- I've And you've seen it, right? You've seen the guys. They're like, oh, man, yeah, I was a shot caller. And you're like... Good for you, buddy. Like, I'm so proud of you. The, your, the heights of your sin were amazing. It's, no, it's the things we're now ashamed of. And our heart should ache over sin. Our heart should ache over the worthlessness and the wastefulness of it. It is, it is such a waste. And we can ask this question in verse 21. What fruit is there from sin? What fruit is there from sin? What benefit is there? There's none. It's just such a waste. But verse 22 but now having been, past tense, this talks about you, you have been set free from sin. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. Death. Not death. That's not even relating at all. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I have fruit now. And think about the fruit of righteousness. Though sin is just waste and shame, Righteousness brings eternal treasures in heaven, impact in my own character that I'll never lose and that I get to carry with me wherever I go, impact as it blesses others and ministers to them. Righteousness is a gift that keeps on giving, whereas sin is a, is a, is a thing that keeps on taking. There's fruit now. And it's to holiness. And holiness in the Bible is a good thing. I don't know if you know this. Holiness is good. Sin is actually bad. Unlike the world, and I, 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 I've said this more than once, but the world who thinks that things are so good, they're bad. Like it's sinfully delicious. Oh, so you mean it tastes really good 
but at the same time, it's evil? <laughs> like, is that what you mean? Like, things aren't sinfully good. They're not so good, they're bad. That doesn't make any sense. No, the, the beautiful thing of walking with Christ is there's a sense of purity in your life. And there's a sense of knowing that your life is right with the Lord. And there's, it's holy. There's a purity. And that's, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. The world acts like the ultimate experience is sin. But the Bible makes it clear the ultimate experience is righteousness. So we're to live out that eternal life. So I, I want to I call us to do this as we close. I just want to call us to actually apply this passage. Romans 6 is asking us to say of our own sinful temptations, things that you might feel you're in bondage to, to look at it and say, you know what? Jesus has delivered me from this. I need to reckon the old man dead and I need to walk in righteousness. I need to not make excuses. I need to not act like I'm in bondage to this thing, although it feels that way. Although I've submitted myself to it and the, and the clamps are on, yet Christ sets me free. And it's, and it's an attitude of faith, I believe. And I've seen it work powerfully in my own life and I've seen it powerfully in the lives of others. That instead of offering an excuse for sin, God offers us deliverance from sin. And I know which one I'd rather have. I'd rather have the deliverance. And it's, it's there. So, let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Romans 6. Wow. You... You bring into our lives a, a high calling. Um, you apply it into the sort of the dirt and the muck where sometimes we live. And we need it so bad. Lord, we need to walk in purity and holiness and godliness and love. We need to put off the, the flesh and the old man to know that we've died with Christ. And to walk in righteousness and present our members as instruments of righteousness, Lord. So I pray for all those of us here, anybody who might later watch this video online, that any anyone who's watching this who's, who is dealing with sin, that we would actually believe Romans 6. That first we'd start by just believing it. And then we would take seriously the exhortation from the Holy Spirit to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we should obey it in its lusts, but to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God. To trust you and to walk in you, Lord, because there is such fruit and such goodness and such an honor and a love and a duty, and it is not for our salvation because we are saved by grace, but it is because of who we are in Christ that we want to live out this life of holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.